Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. Let me just move this. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I'm the executive director. So I was just sucking on a cough drop when I, before I came up here, and I'm fairly certain it is stuck in my throat right now. So if at any point I collapse, um, please use the Heimlich maneuver to resuscitate me. <clears throat> here we are. Anyway, well, welcome. It's your first time here. We appreciate it. Are you guys enjoying the heat? I mean, it's particularly hot. My gosh, it's brutal. I know it's Florida, but my gosh. We went to the beach yesterday, and we were on the sand. And you know they say it's like it's humid here, but honestly, I felt no humidity. It was like sitting in an oven. We were baking. We, just, like, we had to run from our seats into the water. And yesterday was new for us because we like to go to the beach a lot. But yesterday, we went with our friends who have kids. And if you've ever gone to the beach with kids... It really isn't a day at the beach. I mean, there is so much stuff they bring. That is a, that is a, if you're a parent and you bring your kids, that's a job. That is a job. A lot of screaming, a lot of toys. Anyway, we're holding off on kids for a while because we like the beach to be quiet. Anyway, so in my job, a lot of times I hear this phrase a lot. People will come and say this to me, whether it's at church or maybe I'm at a dinner and someone finds out that I work for a church. People will say to me, I'm going to start reading the Bible more. I think it's, I've been going to the church for a while, you grew up in the church, I, think I want to start reading the Bible more. And I think that's great. I think we should all read the Bible more. There's a lot you can learn from the Bible. There's a lot of wisdom. There's some great stories. I think this is very important. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think many times what we're actually saying is, I'm going to start reading the Bible. Because very few of us actually read the Bible. And I understand Look, listen, I get it, okay? The Bible is not the easiest book to read. And if you've gotten the wrong translation, if all of a sudden you're reading it and it's the King James and there's, it looks like you're reading Shakespeare, you're giving up. Immediately you're giving up. And, and it's, there are parts that are boring. There are parts that are confusing. I understand all of that. But many times when people say, I'm going to start reading the Bible, what they do is they go, well, let's get to the Jesus part. Right, let's go to the New Testament and let's just start at the beginning. That makes sense logically. So they open up to Matthew 1.1 and they read. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David. I mean, what? I, mean I, I understand that I'm new to reading the Bible, but I've gone to church a couple of times. I've been there on Christmas. I know, at least I thought I knew, that Jesus was the son of Mary and Joseph. So what are you talking about the son of David? You say, all right, keep going, keep going, forget that. And as you keep reading Matthew, or maybe you go to the other Gospels, what you see time and time again is Jesus being referred to as the son of David. And I, I've just got to imagine you're going to ask yourself, well, who is this guy? Who is this guy, David, where Jesus is being called the son of David? I'm seeing his name everywhere. I'm not really seeing a lot of details. It's just his name over and over and over again. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we want to begin to answer this question. Who is this guy, David? Why is he so important? Who is he in the history of the world? Who is he in the history of Judaism and Christianity? Why did God use him and how did God use him? And what can we learn from his life? So just a blanket statement, just so we kind of have an idea of who David is. David is considered to be the greatest king of Israel. So you guys know of Israel as the country. Okay, it's over there in the Middle East. But Israel has been around for thousands and thousands of years. And he was the greatest king of Israel. But what's so interesting is that he wasn't great because he was perfect. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about 
the mistakes that he's made because David made a lot of big mistakes, some major ones, some sexual ones. There's some murder in there. There's a lot of mistakes in his life. But the reason he was perfect is because he had a heart for God and a willingness to serve him. And what we're going to learn from today, at least that's my hope, is that all God wants from you is that you have a heart for him and you have a willingness to serve him, and he'll take over the rest. So let's get some pretext to the context. Let's get some history, all right? David was born around 1040 B.C. in the nation of Israel. Let's talk about that date, 1040 B.C., because, you know, we use these dates in life. We throw them around. But when we're talking about the Bible, I think it's interesting just to pause and just talk about the obvious. 1040 B.C. means he was born 1,040 years before Christ, before Jesus. That means last week when we were talking about Jesus and his parables, this story and this account is taking a full 1,000 years before that, which makes it even more confusing when we hear Jesus being called the son of David. Well, how is he the son of David if David was 1,000 years earlier? How about Israel? Let's talk about Israel. God established Israel as a theocracy, meaning, for example, he created this nation as a nation of law governed by judges. Let me explain to you what that means. Many thousands of years ago, God went to a man named Abraham, and we don't have to understand all this today, but he went to a man named Abraham, and he goes, I'm going to start my story with you, and your descendants, which will become the nation of Israel, your descendants are going to be blessed And the world is going to be blessed through your descendants. Meaning everyone will be blessed through the nation of Israel. And that's why it's such an important country. And the reason we would all be blessed through this nation is because Jesus was going to be coming out of the nation of Israel. So this form of government is this idea that God said to them, all right, you are my nation, you are my people, and I am going to be your king. I am going to rule over the nation of Israel. There will be no man ruling over this nation. I will be your king. I will hand down laws, commandments, and then I'm going to put a guy named with the title of judge. He's going to be my guy on the ground, and he's going to help administrate these laws. In today's story, the judge's name is Samuel. But see, God's original intention was that they would never have a king that he would always be in charge of the nation of Israel. But eventually, the Israelites wanted what everyone else had. As they looked to their left and they looked to their right and they saw all the other nations, even as they looked at Egypt, who was their captor for 400 years and had a pharaoh, these guys looked around and said, we want a king. God, we understand you're a God and we understand that we are different, that no other nation has a God that runs their country, but we wants a human king. And once again, God felt rejected by his people. But he gave us all free will. And he goes, all right, Israel, that's what you want. I'll give it to you. And so he gave them a man named Saul. Now, what's interesting about Saul is Saul was beloved by the people of Israel. He was tall, we read, good-looking. Presumably, he was funny. He was a tremendous politician. He was a phenomenal warrior. All in all, he was a fantastic king. He was everything you could ever want. He was a great, powerful king. Until he wasn't. Until he wasn't. 
And one day in his life, Saul began to listen to the people of Israel more than he listened to God. And he slipped up and he disobeyed God. And in that moment, God rejected Saul. He rejected him. He didn't pull away the kingship. He still allowed Saul to run the country, but he pulled back his power. And he said, Saul, you are not my guy anymore. And so God rejected Saul, and he commands Samuel, the judge that we mentioned, to find a new one. And that's where the story begins today. So if you have your Bible, you can up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you don't, you can follow along on the screen as usual. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, I have rejected him. He's talking about Saul. I have rejected Saul as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. He's saying, look, listen, Saul, that was y'all's choice. This next guy, he's going to be my king. He's going to measure up to my standard. So I need you to go and find this guy. But Samuel, it goes on. But Samuel asked, uh, how can I do that? I mean, if Saul hears about it, he's going to kill me. And I think this is interesting just to stop and talk about real quick. Because this guy, Samuel, had a direct line of communication with God. They could speak one-on-one, -on -one, just as though you and I are speaking right now. Someone asked me in the first service, well, could he hear, could he hear audibly the voice of God? I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know if this was something he heard in his head or if it was audible, but all we know from the account of the Bible is that these guys could speak one-on-one. -on -one. And even with that, even though God told him, this is what I need you to do, he was afraid. What's so interesting is that even those at the highest level of spirituality struggle with doubt and fear. And if you're like me, even though I work in the church, even though I've said yes to Jesus, he's been my God for my whole life, there are many times, many, many times when I struggle with doubt and fear. And I think we get down on ourselves for that. We expect more from ourselves. But the reality is that we're humans. We are humans. And if Samuel is going to struggle with doubt, we're all going to struggle with doubt. But what you see here is that God can still use you anyway. So God goes, all right, you're scared? You're doubting me? Don't worry, don't worry. Here's what you're going to do. Take a heifer with you. Grab a cow, all right? And say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. He says, I'm going to need you to go. Don't worry. I'm, at that time, I'm going to show you which son I want. I'm not going to tell you now. I need you to go there. I need you to do some things. I need you to go through this process, and I'm going to show you what I need you to do. Let me fill in some details because there's a lot of scripture here. So Samuel goes. He grabs Jesse, takes some of the sons, and they make the sacrifice. Now they head back to Jesse's house. And Jesse knows that Samuel is there to anoint one of his sons at the next king of Israel. So Jesse grabs the oldest son, Eliab. He brings him into the kitchen, and that's where we see it today. It goes on. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, the oldest son, and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. I mean, he takes a look at, he takes a look at Eliab, and he goes, I mean, this guy, he's got everything you could possibly want. He's tall. He's good-looking. He's funny. He's got a great head on his shoulders. Certainly, I have just found the Lord's next anointed king. And why wouldn't he think this? 
These are the, you know, the standards that they used for Saul, and that worked out great until it didn't. And he goes, this is the guy. I have found him. So I was thinking about this. Let me pose this question to you. How many of us rely on our own intuition when it comes to major decisions? When it comes to getting married or leaving the job you're in, taking a new job, starting a business, buying a house, selling a house, moving to a different state. How many of us look at these major life decisions and go, I got it all figured out. I'm a smart guy. I'm a smart woman. I know what's best for me. I know what's best for my family. I know what to do. And sometimes we forget to consult God. We forget to ask him what he wants us to do. And what's so interesting, and we talked about this in a couple of sermons ago, is that God wants us to know what he wants us to do. Seek his will, and he'll show you exactly what he wants you to do, because sometimes our thoughts aren't like his thoughts. And that's what happened here. He says to Samuel that the Lord said, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Eliab is not the guy. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see him. And this next line is one of the most famous lines in all of Scripture. God says to Samuel, People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He goes, goes, people, all they see is the outward appearance, the externalities. What do I look like? What job do I have? And that's how they decide who's important and who's not. And God is saying, It's not that the externalities are bad, but I look on the inside. I look at the heart. And so one by one, like something out of The Bachelor, Jesse brings his sons in and says, is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is it this guy? And one by one, God rejects seven of Jesse's sons. Now, all of whom, they were probably studs. You know, in terms of the world standards, these guys probably had it all, but their hearts weren't right. It's not that they were bad men. It's just their hearts weren't what God needed. It's not what he needed in the next leader of Israel. So I think this next part's probably awkward for Samuel. But he asks, are these all the sons you have? And because I was sent here to anoint one of your sons, and God has rejected every single one. So is it possible that you've maybe left somebody out? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse said. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. He's like, I got one more. I got one more, but he's young, and he's out in the fields, and he's probably covered in dirt. I mean, he's a teenager. Who knows what he's doing right now? Samuel says, get him. Bring him in here. We're not doing anything until I see this next guy. So Jesse sent for him, brings him in. And he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one anoint him. This is the one. Anoint him. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. This is the first time in the Scripture that we hear the name David. Throughout the New Testament, you guys read it, Jesus referred to as the son of David, one of the most important men in the entire Bible, a man whose name, as I learned this week, was mentioned just 113 times fewer than Jesus. We meet him for the first time, and he's a 15-year-old, and he's a shepherd, and his dad left him out in the fields because he didn't think he was worthy of bringing in. So my question is for you, and I think it's an interesting one for us to kind of talk about this morning, is that 
Why would God choose a 15-year-old shepherd? I mean, if this job is to be the king of Israel, the most important nation that ever was and will ever will be, a nation from which Jesus will come from, why would God choose a 15-year-old shepherd to be the next king? Well, let me kind of complicate this even more. What you may not know about shepherds is that during the time of David and during the time of Jesus, so we're talking a span of several thousand years, shepherds were considered to be unclean, meaning not that they're dirty, but they physically couldn't go into a temple to worship God. They were considered unclean. They were considered to be dishonest. They had no civil rights and could not even testify in court. And this is something I learned this week. Jewish oral law at that time stated that no one should feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. I mean, guys, we're talking about people here. I think a lot of times we say shepherd and we think, well, it's just an idea. It's just this concept of somebody that exists in the world. But these people are talking about people. I mean, this could just very well say, don't feel like you have to save a teacher who has fallen into a pit, a construction worker who has fallen into a pit, a doctor. Why would God choose a boy who has a profession that society says isn't even worth saving? Well, the answer I actually found in the New Testament, the answer to this question is actually in the New Testament. It's in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. It's written by a guy named Paul. Don't worry about that today. All you need to hear is the answer. It says this, brothers and sisters, he's talking to a church right now. So how about this? Downtown Harbor Church, think who you were when you were called. He's saying, think about who you were before you said yes to Jesus. Think back to those days, if you can remember them. Not many of you were wise or powerful or born into the family of leaders of a country. He goes on. But God has chosen what the world calls foolish to shame the wise. He has chosen what the world calls weak to shame what is strong. Continues on. God has chosen what is weak and foolish of the world, what is hated and not known, to destroy the things the world trusts in. And in that way, no man can be proud as he stands before the Lord. When I hear the story of David, when I read this piece of scripture, what the Lord is telling me is this. Don't let the world dictate who you are or what you're worth. Don't do it. Don't let the world dictate who you are or what you're worth. Because when you look at the world, when you look at the standards of what the world, and let's just take American society, let's just take South Florida, let's take Fort Lauderdale, what they esteem and say, this is what makes you worth it. They say, well, it takes money. You got to have it. You got to have a lot of it. You got to have a great education. You got to have a house, and it better be nice. And you better have nice, fancy clothes and a great car, and you better be loaded up with jewelry. This is what America, this is what culture esteems. This is what they say matters. And if you don't have these things, you don't matter. Where's your house? Oh, you don't own a house. Hmm. What kind of car are you driving? Oh, you take a bus. What college did you go to? Oh, not Ivy League? Oh, you didn't go to college. Huh. 
And the problem is this. This is screaming at us from every corner of the universe. It's social media. It's Instagram. It's Facebook. It's social, you know, it's reality television. Everyone is saying, this matters. The external matters. God is saying, no, no, no. No, it doesn't. But the problem is, if you're not careful, we begin to live, believe the lies in this world. We start saying to ourselves, well, I don't have a nice house. I, I, don't, I don't live in a great neighborhood. I, I didn't get a chance to go to college. I mean, I work in a profession that nobody respects. I don't, I don't matter. I don't matter, and certainly God can't use me. But here's what we know from the story of David. And here's what we know from the story of Jesus. And time and time again, we see that God chooses the unlikely people so his power can be shown in their weakness. Time and time again, God chooses people. That world says, Who, wait, what? You're using a fisherman? You're using a shepherd? And God says, yes, because I want people who are reluctant but are looking to me for their power. And when I use them, when I use them, others will look at their life and go, who is your God that he is doing so much through you? So what's interesting is that Jesus found himself surrounded by a crowd one time. We talked about this last week. But in this particular crowd, in this particular instance, he was surrounded by people who were obsessed with money. Obsessed. They loved it. And what's interesting is that in this particular instance, he was talking to religious people who were obsessed with money. They loved it. They lived for it. In today's message, we could just say they were obsessed with houses and education and jewelry and cars, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is, but they were obsessed with it. And Jesus looked into their eyes and he said this, you are the kind of people, you are the kind of people who make yourselves look good before other people. He goes, I, listen, I know what's going on. You're only interested in showing off to other people. You're all excited about yourselves. You want to look good. You want to impress other people. But God knows your hearts. He knows your hearts. And this next line, folks, if this isn't convicting, I don't know what is. He looks at him and he goes, what men thinks is good is hated. Hated in the eyes of the Lord. That list that we put up there, education, money, house, jewelry, cars, there's nothing wrong with any of that. The problem is what those things can do to the man. And that is why God can't stand that stuff. Because when you focus on those things, when you begin to evaluate yourself based on whether you have it or what you don't, but particularly if you have it, what he's saying is this. Worldly success confuses the best of us. Worldly success, having the nice car, having the great house, having the designer clothing, having the expensive watch, having the nice boat, it confuses the best of us. Because what happens is that if you're not careful, we begin to think we deserve the credit and not God. We start saying, oh, look at the house that I bought. Look at the car that I drive. Look at the attractive spouse that I landed. And nowhere in the conversation do we hear anything about God. God did this for me. God allowed this blessing in my life. Nowhere, nowhere do we find God. And folks, here's a promise straight from Scripture. You want to know something? God does not use the proud. If you want a surefire way for God not to use you, then you need to be cocky. And you need to think life is about you. 
Look what I've done. Look who I have. Look who I am. Look what I have accomplished. God does not use the proud. So, why does God choose the shepherds? The uneducated, the lowly, the humble, and the unexpected. The reason is, is that when he uses the reluctant person, when he chooses to use somebody that society, quote-unquote, looks down on, people that society doesn't, quote, expect much from, when he uses that person in a mighty and powerful way, God wants others to look at you and ask, who is your God? Because when society sees someone who they don't expect do something powerful, they don't look at the man, they look at the God. And they say, surely there is something different in your life that you can accomplish these things. Tell me more about it. That's why he chose Israel. That's why he chose David. That's why he chooses the unexpected. So I was thinking about the story of Jesse, and I was thinking about this idea that this father, who you would think fathers are proud of their kids no matter what, but this father knows that Samuel showed up at his door from God to anoint one of his sons as the next king. And yet he decides to leave one of his sons out in the field. And, and it made me ask this question, who, who are we leaving out in the fields? I mean, in your own life, who have you written off? This person's not worth it. This person's a goner. This person's made mistakes. Not worth it. And you've just written them off. And you've just left them out there in the fields. And then I was thinking about the local church. And I was thinking about, well, how does this play out in a church perspective? I mean, has the church left anybody out in the fields? And I, I had to ask this question. I said, how many people, how many people has the local church prevented from being used by God? How many people has looked, how many people have, have come to the church and said, I want to be used? And here, here's what I've known. I've worked in the local church for many, many years. And I hate to admit this publicly, but time and time again, people wanted to serve God and the church put up a wall. We'd have people coming up, and this is not here, saying, I want to serve. I want to get plugged in. I want to do something. And the church puts up a wall. And they say things like, well, you don't believe everything we believe? I mean, your theology, it seems a little different than ours. You don't believe this? Eh, can't serve. You've got this particular sin in your life? No, you can't serve God. You cannot serve God. Think about this for a second. What if Jesus, what if Jesus used the average church's requirements to choose his disciples? Think about this for a second, because you may not have thought about this. The disciples did not believe Jesus was who he said that he was until they saw him rise from the grave. And he used them anyway. I mean, these men walked with Jesus for three years. They probably slept in the same room as Jesus. They ate the same food as him. They saw him bring people back to life. They saw him walk on water. They saw him feed thousands, cure diseases. And yet these men did not believe that Jesus was who he was until they saw him come back to life. And yet he gave them a chance to serve. And they were changed lives, and they helped spread the gospel. So here's what you need to know about DHC. DHC, Downtown Harbor Church, is not in the business of saying no to a willing heart. 
If you are someone who wants to serve God, this is the church for you. We will find a place for you to serve because we are not in the business of leaving people out in the field to peek through the windows and saying, can I get a chance? I know maybe I'm not much by the world standards, but I want to serve God. Here you can. Here you can. So what's the practical? If it's your first time here at Downtown Harbor Church, every single week we put this word up on the screen. The reason we do that is we want to make sure you guys can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So number one, don't be so quick to judge. Don't be so quick to look at people and what they look like and cast them off and say, nope, you're not worth it. You've got this going on in your life. Can't be used. You can't make a difference in this world. Secondly, don't be so quick to judge yourself. Don't be so quick to judge yourself. Okay? A lot of times we take ourselves out of the game. Don't do that. You may be exactly where God wants you to be. Second of all, embrace humility. Embrace humility. As I said, God does not use the proud. God does not use the proud. He wants somebody who recognizes that all we have in this world, whether it's our education, our health, our wealth, whatever the case may be, all of that is on loan from God. Yes, you worked for it. Yes, you earned it. But everything comes from God. God wants you to live a life of submission where you say, everything I am is because of you. You do that. You submit. You embrace humility and watch out. You watch how God uses you. Which means this. Be ready for your moment. David was just out there one day in the fields. Who knows what he was doing out there? But God showed up at his door looking for him. Where are you going to be when God comes looking for you? Always be ready. Always have a heart that's ready to say, here I am, Lord. Use me. I'm ready to serve. And the last one is this. Live patiently. So when David got anointed and God said, you are going to be the next king of Israel, he actually wouldn't be able to sit on the throne for another 15 years. He would have to work for Saul. And as we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, those were a brutal 15 years for him. He had to live patiently. He had to do a lot of demeaning work, a lot of menial tasks. And I have to imagine all along the way, he's asking himself, when is it going to be my turn? But in those 15 years, it's what we call a season of preparation. God was building David's character. Yes, he had chosen him, but he had to do some work in David's life. And in those 15 years, he was making him the person that God needed him to be. So maybe you're here today asking yourself the question of, well, when is God going to use me? When I want to be used, when is he going to use me? I would just say, maybe he already is. Maybe he already is. And you now are in a season of preparation just like David. And he has to trust you with the small things before he can give you the big things. And maybe you're somebody who says, I don't know if he's going to give me the big things because I don't really measure up. Understand this. You may have nothing by the world's standards, but your heart is all God needs. He just needs you to love him and to say, yes, here I am. Use me. And you watch how powerfully God can use your life to transform the lives of people around you. Let me pray.
Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to come here today. God, that you've given us the ability to come to this building and, and just talk about you. I pray, Lord, that if there are people here today that have felt beat down by society, that society has looked at them and left them out in the fields and said, you don't match up to what we think is great, Lord. I pray, Lord, that today they would understand that they are exactly the kind of person that you can use, Lord. That they are where they need to be, Lord. And all they have to do is to say yes to you and step back. And Lord, you can work powerfully through their lives. And others can look at the transformation and ask the question, who is that God? And what has he done in your life? I pray, Lord, today that you would challenge us all, Lord. That you would be with us, that you would meet all of our needs. We ask all of this in your son, Jesus' name.